Welcome to Breaking Free Podcast, your recovery, your way. I'm Tiffany. And I'm Liv. You're in the right place if you want to explore what it means to be in recovery, to challenge the things that keep us small, and to learn how to thrive independently. Together, we are breaking free. Just a quick reminder that while I'm a nurse and a coach, and Liv is a coach, recovery advocate, and a writer, we are not doctors. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you need to, please, please see a doctor. The Alana Club of Portland is proud to sponsor the Breaking Free podcast. Your recovery, your way, is at the heart of our approach to recovery support services. Unity Recovery, an inclusive recovery community organization serving all of Philadelphia, is proud to support the Breaking Free podcast. Recovery is possible. Find your path to break free. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's podcast. We are going to have the pleasure of hearing Liv's story. Uh, Liv is somebody that I met uh, a year ago. We've not had a friends anniversary. Uh, not yet. Yeah, I had just gotten back from Europe, and um, when today we're recording this, just a few days ago, was the fire in uh, at Notre Dame in Paris, mm. and it was almost a year ago exactly that I was in Paris, and I went, I visited Notre Dame, and uh. I'm so grateful to have been able to do that. Anyways, uh, when I came home from that trip, I almost immediately met Liv at a friend's house, and um, you know, I'd just been to England, and so I got to ask her, oh, where are you from, when I heard her lovely accent, and... Um, Germany. <laughs> Definitely not Germany. Um, so we're going to hear her story. But, you know, I'm so excited to hear, um, you know, her experience because I know her as somebody who is really wanting to lead in the recovery community, who has a very generous heart, and um, her dog's pretty cool too. So <laughs> so we get to hear all about how she got to be who she is today. Oh, thank you. Yeah. We should uh, celebrate our friend's anniversary. Yes, we need to do figure it. that out for the mm. day. Anyway, um, thank you for such a lovely introduction. Um, I am, what am I, seven, just over seven years in recovery now. It was my um, sobriety date because I chose abstinence for my, my pathway on the 26th of March. Yay. So yeah, just over seven years. Oh, hold on. <laughs> we have a bell folks if this is your first time listening uh we celebrate milestones people events on our podcast accomplishments yeah yeah ring uh, a bell we're from portland wow i am now in portland tiffany's from portland <laughs> where we celebrate energy here too <laughs> the british person inside of me is dying a little bit when i said that <laughs> so yeah i um i have quite an interesting um history I always tell myself, oh, you know, when I was asked when I was in meetings, if uh, I would share and I'd be like, oh, well, you know, it's just another story of someone finding recovery. But, Mm. but actually, you know, I think it is worthwhile sharing our stories because it speaks to other people and they may identify with aspects of that journey. Mm -hmm. And because I believe that you know, there, there is, is rarely just substance use disorder and a really happy home life or childhood. You know, there's always so many, so many other factors that, that come into that. So for me, my journey, I was born in the States, despite my accent. Mm-hmm. I am actually American folks. Um, I was born in New York and 
I was born into a family where substance use disorder was prevalent and uh, not just in my immediate family but in my um, my father's side too and as a result we ended up moving to England when we were just three years old and that's where I grew up and it was really challenging for me. I think that was the first episode of trauma mm. that, that probably is what instigated living in that environment is probably what instigated my PTSD. Mm. Um, but, you know, the more that I read about trauma and uh, how it manifests in the brain and I can see that that could have happened way back when I was in the womb, you know, mm. as a female, particularly, our brains develop differently. Mm-hmm. And that kind of dysfunction that you experience within the nervous system when you have trauma can happen uh, in utero, which is, is oh. fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I really struggled to integrate into life in England. I mm. very, very much was a, a bit of a loner, you know, I... Um, I'm a twin and, um, you know, I can speak from my experience where I, you know, I, I really struggle to integrate. I would want to spend a lot of time on my own. Um, I, I just, just was not present. Dissociation, I now realize was present way back then. Mm. And comparison too, you know, I lived in an environment where diets were prevalent. Mm. So I remember being in what we call primary school. So that's like, uh, what's the equivalent of primary school? So after kindergarten. Yeah, first through fifth. Like, and Yeah, then like junior school. school. Yeah, middle mm. school. So, and I, I would, we used to have what we call assembly where we would sit in in a group, in a, in a school hall, first thing in the morning where the teachers would address us. And I remember sitting there, crossing, sitting cross-legged and comparing the size of my thighs next to the girl next to me. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't even 10 years old. Yeah. So, you know, comparison, disordered eating started around that age too, Mm. where I would, you know, I would always uh, want to take Mondays or Tuesdays off school. You know, I would feign a stomach ache or a headache Mm. and I just, I just didn't want to be there. I hated school Mm. and, you know, I would eat, I would secretly eat. Mm. So disordered eating was probably the very first thing that happened for me, the dissociation, the isolation and the the depression, the disordered eating were all the first things that started in my life that led me to the point where, you know, as as things progressed, we moved a lot and, you know, I was it was kind of, you know, I was in three different schools and as the new girl, when you already don't feel like you fit in, mm. was really challenging for me. And and I think that's what started my adjustment disorder too, you know, where I really struggle with moving. And I get, as you can probably experience, because <laughs> I'm anticipating moving at the minute, mm. I get really upset and I feel really unsettled. So mm. things progressed in that way. And I started smoking when I was around 10 And it was just a progression of one substance after another, Mm. you know, so it was smoking and then it was boys. And then I would uh, start drinking and smoking weed and taking amphetamines and acid around 12, 13 years old. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it was, that to me was self-medication. You know, I was so deeply depressed. Mm. I attempted suicide. I don't know if you know this about me, actually. Mm-hmm. When I was 
in my early teens. Mm. And it I was like you were in a lot of pain. I was in a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the emotional coping skills. I didn't know what to do with I didn't know what was going on in my body. I didn't know what I was suffering what was with depression. Um and alcohol and drugs just made me feel better. Like there was chemically something really awry in my brain Mm, mm -hmm. and in my nervous system so it was just Mm. relief and it was it was that 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 perpetuate the cycle is I could not wait for the next moment to take drugs again Mm -hmm. and that led me to becoming very good friends with a 36 year old drug dealer Mm. when I was like 15 years old yeah um so uh, that was a pretty unhealthy relationship. <laughs> Weird. Weird. Huh? I, you know, I, it was only in you know when I when I found recovery that someone said, you know, you're really lucky. He was probably grooming you. You know, nothing mm. happened, but it could have happened. I was in some pretty precarious positions. Yeah. I always wonder, like, what is going through the mind of someone who's in their 30s or 40s and that are hanging out with young girls? Like, <laughs> like where, what are you, uh, how do you relate to someone who's 20, you know, plus year? I mean, and not, not that, you know, I think as adults, people can have distance, you know, my husband and I have 11 years between us and yeah. it's okay. But, um, but I think, you know, when you're, when you're looking at someone who's in their mid thirties compared to right. a 15 year old, like there's not, there's, how do you relate to that person at all? Why do you want people who are 20 years younger around when you're, yeah. you know? Yeah. So. What is wrong with you that you can't it's so bizarre have to me. relationships yeah. with your peers, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's it. an interesting phenomenon in the, um, and I, I feel like, really? yeah. And it, it's funny that it happened to be your dealer. That's, you know, my experience was older men, yeah. Uh, would provide yeah. me with substance and alcohol, yeah. and, you know, whatever substances, um, much more. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't without, although I, I do struggle with this a little bit, you know, when, when you go through the process of amends and you look at your part, uh, I kind of struggle with taking responsibility for the things that I did when I was a child. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I was a child then, you know, of course, if I committed any crime or things like that, you know, that's a different story. But, you know, the harm that I caused to myself and, and, you know, and I did cause a lot of stress with my parents. You know, I was really challenging to live with, but I had no outlet. I didn't know how to process my emotion or my feelings or anything nobody showed me like this if you had nobody asked me if you had a difficult day Mm. what can I do to help Mm. and that that was a really foreign concept to me um I think you know knowing what I know now if you you know the there's an adult child of alcoholics laundry list when I read Mm. that I was like wow you know this immediate responsibility we take for an unsettling household is is really challenging so it was always my you know I always felt like there was something wrong with me that I was causing all of these problems that you know and and actually taking drugs and using and all of those you know I did cause a lot of problems you know I probably drove my mum nuts uh and how do you deal with a child like that you know it's really difficult um so the, there, there is that aspect, but it only just pushed me further away. And mm. it, what's interesting is, even though I had that those problems, and you know, at that point, the disordered eating had, had gone into starvation mode. Like, mm. you know, I would, I wouldn't eat 
uh, I would save my my bus money. I would and my food money. I wouldn't eat, and I would buy cigarettes. Mm. So I wouldn't eat all day until like I got home from school at like three thirty, four o'clock. Mm-hmm. And and then I realized the power of of using my body as a weapon. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was another tool of manipulation in my belt, and and that that was really the starting point. You know, once I had that formula down. <laughs> Like, this is what you need to do to make yourself feel better. Mm. Whether it's attention from other people or it's taking drugs and using substances. Like, this is, this, these, those were my coping skills. Mm. And I used those from t- my early teenage years until I was 32 and I found recovery. You mm. know, I have all the stories. I have the waking up on the apartment floor in the morning wondering what's happened to me, the having to inspect my body for bruises. The, in the morning, having to look through my phone, see who I called, mm-hmm. you know, having mm-hmm. that shame of what did I do last night? Who's this person next to me? Mm-hmm. All of those things happened to me. All of the things I said I wouldn't do, I did. Mm-hmm. You know, but but throughout that, I still managed to go to college. Well, I still managed to get a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't actually show up to a lot of my college. Um, I got a degree, I got a job. But I was barely coping, mm-hmm. you know. I, it sounds like this, this was like lifelong that you, yeah, from, it was. from the but time that you moved I never, at least. Yeah, I never used normally. I never, you know, I always drank to blackout um, and a blacking out happened in my teenage years throughout mm-hmm. until I was 32. Yeah, so it sounds like barely coping throughout life, Yeah, not having necessarily the support that you needed or the modeling Or at least not really knowing how to um, heal or work through these things. Yeah. And not really having outside help with those things. And then then learning, oh, if I just put enough of various things in my body or I receive enough um, outside attention or outside... It will turn the pain off. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So then a path of numbing out. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, to... But then it was the numbing from the beginning, right? The, the like this, this creates. Now I understand it to create more chemicals in my brain to make my brain feel like I didn't want to die every day. Mm. Um, but then the numbing. Oh my god, the numbing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we just kept trudging on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, trudging on and trudging on and trudging on until I caused so much harm to my body that my doctor was saying you're getting scarring on your liver. Mm. I, you know, my, my liver function tests were crazy. I was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. I was drinking at least four bottles of wine a day Mm. and taking, it was taking a lot of codeine at that point. Um, cocaine had done a really big feature in my life. Mm. Um, you know, I'd pretty much tried most things and I reached this point, um, of rock bottom, you know, and I, and I don't, I firmly believe that we don't need to get to a rock bottom to get help. Like you don't Mm. have to go through Mm. 20 years of pain, Mm -hmm. you know, where, where I was lucky, you know, I could have ended up in any number of the places that, that other people have. And I didn't, you know, I did end up with very few friends. I wasn't able to keep a job I wasn't able to look after myself Mm -hmm. I was harming my body internally as well as externally Mm -hmm. and I wanted to die Mm -hmm. you know at one point a family member flew from America to England because they were so concerned about me Mm -hmm. 
but I had to get to this place where I was like, there, there has to be more to life than this. Like I, I, and I, you know, even though I don't necessarily believe in God, I can only describe that as a moment of grace because mm. I could have killed myself. Mm. You know, I've been slowly killing myself for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So I just decided recovery and I just, there has to be more than this. And that's kind of been my metaphor for recovery. You know, mm. there has to be more than this. There always is more. All right, we're going to take a pause here so that we can hear from our awesome sponsors. The Alana Club of Portland is proud to sponsor the Breaking Free podcast. Your recovery, your way, is at the heart of our approach to recovery support services. As the largest and most diversely programmed non-clinical recovery support center in the United States, we've been proudly breaking barriers and forging new pathways for years to ensure everyone has a home in recovery. From peer mentoring to recovery CrossFit, from trauma-informed yoga to mindfulness training, the Alano Club of Portland has a recovery pathway that's right for you. Here at Unity Recovery, we believe recovery should be the expectation, not the exception. Whether you find support with mutual aid, harm reduction, medication, or yoga, your recovery is beautiful and worth celebrating. Learn more and become part of the recovery movement at unityrecovery.org. And we're back. Uh, Life is really big. Mm. Uh, So at that point when I found recovery, I was really it was the heaviest I'd ever been I felt really bloated I I hated myself I had no sense of identity I've never felt so lost in my life Mm -hmm. I didn't have anything or anyone to hold on to and that's when I went to AA it was a close family member that said you know they went to AA and said this is an option they gave me a meeting list they circled one that was within a five minute walk Wow. It gave me that's some B vitamins. That's convenient. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was the beginning of my journey. Yeah, I, I appreciate the way you described how you were feeling when you came, you know, when you were kind of at that turning point where you mm. wanted to start seeking recovery. And I remember in the last episode, you talked about, um, in episode six, you talked about your experience at the first, or maybe oh, yeah. it was episode five. Now I'm not remembering, <laughs> but you talk about your experience the first time you walked into a meeting and you plopped down and you were yeah. just like, oh, I'm here, <laughs> you know. I'm living, I knew. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, a lot of us can identify with that feeling of just, I, you know, I, I'm dra- I've been dragging this pain around with me yeah. and I haven't been able, I've been barely holding on. I don't know yeah. how to cope and yeah. there's got to be something else, but yeah. I don't know how to yeah. have it. Yeah. I just don't know. That was it. I just don't know. Help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happened? Uh, here I am. <laughs> um, I spent a good five years in AA uh, and NA uh, and unlike what some other people say, I don't believe that AA saved my life. I believe that AA gave me the tools to save my own life because mm. I did the work. Mm-hmm. And I was very generously giving a lot, given a lot of time from other people. Mm. And I worked really hard at rebuilding myself mm-hmm. from the ground up. You know, I found a period of sobriety. I did the steps 
three and a half times. Mm-hmm. So I did the NA steps and the AA steps twice. And, and did you, um, I don't know how, how much you want to share about this, but when you came into the rooms, yeah. did you immediately get sober and stay sober or did you? Yeah, because I, I, I knew that if I took another drink, I would kill myself. Oh, yeah. I just, that was, I was at that, that real, for me, that was it. Just a, a place of total desperation. I think Absolutely. That, that you were really ready for it. Yeah. Like the bottom of the bottoms, like I couldn't go any lower. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it stuck. Because I had tried for a couple of years before to stop and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know. I mean, I knew what happened that weekend before. I drank 14 bottles of wine over a weekend. Yeah. And my apartment was a complete disaster. Mm-hmm. And like looking at that, I, I went through an alcohol withdrawal in my bathroom. Mm, that, that must be miserable. Oh my God. I have never felt so ill in my life. I wanted to call an ambulance several times mm-hmm. and I like I was going in and out of consciousness. It's like, and folks, please do not ever consider doing that. This is not a recommendation of ours. Yeah. Yeah, Seek just, medical advice. Absolutely. Um, I am a nurse and I do know that withdrawal from alcohol actually is a medical emergency and can kill you if you're going through signs of withdrawal or you're planning on stopping drinking when you've been drinking um, you know, a significant amount on a regular basis see a doctor, go, if you're, you know, experiencing withdrawal symptoms, go to the emergency room. It yeah. is a medical emergency. And, and yeah. we do have the disclaimer on here, but, um, but it, take it seriously. And in addition to the fact that it could be a medical emergency, there's just no reason to go through that. There are <sighs> services, there are things, I mean, even supplements, you know, getting yeah. acupuncture, right? There's a lot of things that can help you when you're trying to get sober. So seek outside help for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was lucky that that there, there is free healthcare in England. You know, what do people, I mean, what, what, let's talk about privilege for a minute. Mm. What do you do in America if you don't have insurance, mm-hmm. you are dependent on alcohol and you need to get some help? Yeah, you have to go to the emergency room, anticipate that you're going to get a bill. Um, here in Oregon, we have, OHSU does have a, Scott, like a discount program Mm -hmm. and we do have people who can help you try to get insurance um and we do have some detox centers so you can go hooper is one of them um but you have to literally go wait in line at like six in the morning and try to get in yeah um oregon health plan is available yeah and they will they will um Oh my God. I remember when I first moved here, I got Oregon health plan. Mm-hmm. The forms are. Oh, I know. It's oh incredible. I, as someone who had a, 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 you know, I had a GED and then as someone who became college educated and I was still applying for my daughter, uh-huh. um, I felt like it was nearly impossible. And yeah. I was like, I don't know how people who are, you know, are undereducated or who, um, maybe have some learning disabilities or uh-huh. who have, uh, you know, who don't have support or who have mental health issues. Like, how do you fill out those forms? So it is kind of a nightmare, but there are services available. Yeah. It's just, it's nice that you guys have, I, I, you know, we don't need to make a whole political thing here, but <laughs> I believe everyone deserves healthcare as a, as a nurse. And Absolutely. so that's, that's wonderful. So you were able to access. I was able to access care, although, you know, I, I actually went the route of the rooms and then saw a doctor and said, you know, this is what I'm doing. And they performed all of the blood tests that I needed to, to monitor my liver and its recovery. And actually mm. made a complete recovery within 12 weeks. Mm, it's amazing. amazing. Yeah. Within normal limits. Mm. Uh, I was still smoking a lot at that stage and they were really concerned about my lungs, <laughs> you know, and I was on steroids, but yeah, 
Um, it was it was a pretty frightening time. Um, I was really sick. Mm. So I, you know, we and we talked about this in, in one of the other episodes, the, the, the helpful aspects of AA, that I felt really held by that fellowship initially, especially when I was so lost. I didn't have anything to cling to, and they were there. You know, it was an immediate community of sober people that were able to hold me up until I could find my feet. Mm. And that's, that's, and I think, you know, even though 12-step is, is one of the few options in England, is the dominant option, uh, particularly in the northwest of England, it is a really strong fellowship. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it did help initially. I had the support in place and I maintained a period of recovery. But then I got to a place where I kind of woke up, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think pretty much the first year I was still like uh, just a walking head. Yeah. Oh, our <laughs> brains are very much affected by all of that. Right. You know. It takes a long time for the chemicals in the brain to to recover I mean for much longer afterwards there are psychiatrists that talk about you know low d2 receptor dopamine receptors so that's why we seek out other substances Mm. that's why people return to use there's such a high instance of this being a chronic condition that means you return to use often Mm. um I was deeply clinically depressed and used food Mm. so used food used alcohol used relationships (laughs) (laughs) I would sit in a room and I was look across the room and say I mean this is a whole episode oh the allure of attractive people in the program right (laughs) he'll do (laughs) let's plan the wedding before the end of the meeting Oh my and then and then you do this whole kind of dance and anyway I mean yeah so that that's that's the heart of my journey mm. um and and really AA opened the door to my greater healing mm. you know it, it ended up to be not the right pathway for me after a few years uh like my life in England wasn't the right path for me I wanted mm. to come back to the states and yeah let's talk about this let's yeah. dive into it so you made quite a leap okay. everyone call me crazy <laughs> and look at you now look you, at me you now. followed your heart and it all worked out I did people said why are you moving to Portland you don't have anywhere to live you don't know anyone you don't have a job what are you doing you crazy lady <laughs> And, you know, my, my, a close family member member lives in Northern California. So I wanted to be close to them, but not that close. And I, but I needed to build my own life. Mm. This had to be a life that I wanted to choose for myself. No longer one that was given to me and chosen Mm. for me. Mm. Uh, Life in England had become really small. You know, I was working in a job that I, I didn't necessarily like. I, I just wanted more. So... At that point, I'd started my, what was then blog, Lives Recovery Kitchen, and was looking at the landscape of recovery. I'd started writing for a few publications, and I just entertained the idea, like, what if? What if I could be a full-time writer? What if I could start my own life? Let's just try. You know, I was 37 years old. I was single, although I was still going back and forth with the next as a 
you know, that relationships teach us so much about ourselves. <laughs> and I just decided to make the leap of faith and I moved here and I almost immediately started writing full time. I believe that when we do what we're supposed to do, it all works out. Mm. And ever since I've, um, I've had work mm. and I've met great people. It was really hard initially because I decided to leave AA at the same time. Mm. That was really challenging. And um, I had to, <laughs> the amount of times I've been like, please universe, send some people into my life that mm. I really like. And then you showed up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> Here you are. I'm your friend. Yeah. <laughs> and I, when I left AA, I also started a, a new pathway in recovery of connecting to my body Mm. you know that's the thing about Portland is alternative medicine and really kind of coming home to who you are is really prevalent here Mm. Portland really introduced me to myself Mm. you know all of my biases all of my um all of myself Mm and it it was a really beautiful thing I I started to go into a naturopathic doctor and a new therapist, and it was at that point we realized that I have complex PTSD, probably adjustment disorder, and that is perhaps the underly- underlying reason why I used it in the first place. Mm. Yeah, so I, I started seeing a naturopathic doctor, and I started to see a therapist, and therapy became my pathway of recovery, and at that point we realized that I have complex PTSD and it's that that underlines uh, un- is un- underlies rather my uh, substance use disorder mm. you know that chronic dysregulation in my body is is why I was self-medicating mm-hmm. so it's that that needed to be healed more than anything else mm-hmm. um, and only with a period of recovery was I able to do that I, I used I get and I can still get so frustrated in therapy about the fact that I went the 12 step route instead of the trauma route I feel like in some ways I've been cheated you know Mm. but my therapist said look you wouldn't have been able to deal with the trauma recovery Mm. in the first few years of recovery because it's really painful Mm -hmm. and she was right (laughs) yeah yeah to unearth all of that and dig into it yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so um I'm curious would you call yourself highly sensitive or an empath are you willing to dive into that yeah (laughs) I, that's another thing that Portland has shown me about myself, Mm. you know, I've realized that I had been not, you know, I'd been going to meetings and I'd be doing what I was told with my recovery and kind of fighting what my body was telling me for so long, Mm. you know, fighting the things that didn't work for me, but also fighting the struggling energy levels and you know I realized that yeah I'm an empath and yeah I'm an introvert Mm. and that I need to protect my energy Mm. that was a really profound change in my life Mm. and realizing that I can't have friendships with some people who are draining to my energy Mm. for long periods of time like I can't be close to that even living in an apartment building is not right for me Mm. I pick up on other people's stuff Mm -hmm. uh, to the point where I can feel dysregulation in my body Mm -hmm. and you know I've been shamed for this Mm. my whole life you're really sensitive Liv you know this as if that that's that's you know something wrong with me Mm -hmm. 
when actually being an empath means that yes we feel things intensely but from that gift I'm able to write at a level of, of work I can write that connects with people emotionally yeah. in a way that not many people can do mm-hmm. you know that I can actually take people on a journey with my writing and that's a really powerful gift yeah absolutely mm-hmm. yeah um what are the gifts you're an empath so <laughs> tell yeah. me what you think the gifts of being an empath are uh yeah so I think that and we could do a whole episode on this but um but what I see in you is someone who is yeah, sensitive to other people's energy, to... Um, and their bullshit. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Um, and someone who is able to really transform pain into something that is, a, you know, a growth experience, a connecting experience, mm-hmm. um, an opportunity to... Um, share with others that might be going through the same thing. And so I, I agree, absolutely, that's a gift. And I think it's important to recognize if that's a part of who you are, because like you said, it it requires managing our energy, it requires mm-hmm. kind of protecting, you know, having a little bit of a bubble, deciding, you know, what you want in and what you don't want in. And, you know, yeah. we both experienced, like we went to She Recovers last year and we were really um, it was wonderful, but, you know, just really cognizant of, okay, if I'm going to be sitting in a room, like absorbing information, you know, if we're going to be out with people, um, at a dinner or something like that, we're going to need time between and downtime and, um, go walks in nature and all of those yeah. things. So I think that's really, it, it's important to recognize that. So I'm sure there's a lot of people who will identify with your story in that way. And actually having the permission to do like giving ourselves the permission to put ourselves first was mm. a foreign concept to me, Yeah, you know, like my energy levels are really important and and this isn't about like bulldozing through that you know mm-hmm. so the the idea that that the, the answer <laughs> this is really interesting there's like five thoughts at once coming um is that in the in the early days of recovery uh the suggestion for my low energy levels which was actually a manifestation of of um, my PTSD and chronic fatigue was you just need to go to a meeting. Mm-hmm. That's that was the answer. That's kind of the answer. Yeah, totally. Right, <laughs> Tiffany. I know that you're really depressed today. What you need is a meeting, <laughs> right? And actually, that wasn't the right thing for me. Mm. I, the only reason I felt momentarily better was because I was silent for a minute. Mm. And then I had to start listening to all these people and that was triggering for me. Mm. What I needed was quiet time. And that's been a really profound change in my recovery is, Mm. is building that time in that's been so helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So how about today? What's it like for you now? (sighs) Life today. I can breathe, right? Mm. I have tools today. Mm. I still can get triggered. I don't think I'll ever not be in a position. Well, I don't know, actually. I was going to say I I might not ever be in a position where I won't be triggered. But I don't know that. I know that I have had periods of stabilization with my PTSD where I felt uh, no dysregulation in my body. I've uh, there's, there's a strong correlation between trauma and childhood and autoimmune conditions. And, you know, I have an autoimmune condition and, and for me that can manifest at periods of stress with a lot of pain and, um, 
inflammation and when I am in a period of stability the pain goes away mm-hmm. so that's been really wonderful and I run my own business I mm. can make and choose who I want to work with and what my life looks like today I have the freedom of choice yeah. that's a really wonderful thing I realize my privilege today mm. I you know have a lot of opportunity afforded to me and I greatly appreciate that and mm. if there's an opportunity to raise the voices of marginalized and oppressed communities I'd like to do that too I feel very passionately I was once I was recently asked to feature a psychologist in Malibu on my website and I absolutely said no <laughs> because first of all the content on my site is original but second I don't see how that's accessible to people. You know, if, mm. if if you look at my site, there are resources for people in all walks of life and unless they're going to offer scholarships, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I want recovery to be accessible for all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's kind of how you give back now, right? Is right. trying to make it accessible and um, inclusive Yeah, for everyone. As inclusive as it can be, yeah. So through your writing, through this podcast. yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, spoiler alert, through the book that's coming. Oh, yeah. I'm writing a book, guys. <laughs> Honeys. Honeys, I'm writing a book. Uh, so it sounds like a ton of possibility. Yeah. I love that you said freedom of choice. Freedom like, this is choice. a life that you choose for yourself today. It is. And, and life is so much bigger than the pain that I had mm. and the ways that I was coping with that pain. Well, mm. not really coping. Um, mm. So the, the, to choose... To use again would be a choice. Well, it is no choice. It's mm. it will it, it will be a choice to to not have the life that I the fulfilling life that I have, mm-hmm. and that would be a trade off of all the things that you've chosen for yourself today. Right, and relationships. Mm. You know, it's just not it's not worth it anymore. So yeah, it's it's a really amazing life. Oh, awesome. Okay, so for the purpose of the podcast, what have you broken free from? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I have broken free from substance use disorder, smoking, um, disordered eating, people's expectations of me and wanting to please and validate myself mm. through other people, codependency, um, closed family units. people's expectation of me that was really powerful and 12 steps Mm. and what are you what does breaking free look like for you today breaking free to me is about being really intentional in my life you Mm. know is this the right choice for me Mm. am I making this choice because I want to please someone else Mm. or because that's the way that it's supposed to go You know, for me, my metaphor in life is what if, you know, there has to be more than this. So it's about looking at alternative options, Mm. breaking free from those small paradigms, you know, Mm. the paradigms that keep us small, right? Mm -hmm. So um, just because this is the way that it has been doesn't mean this is the way it has to be for me. Mm. Awesome. So all the limiting, anything that's limiting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And thank I know you. that people out there will identify. There was definitely parts that I could 
you know, very much identify with. And um, it's lovely to hear how you became who you are today and um, all of the the leaps of faith that you took and what you have achieved and um, broken free from. So thank you, Liv. Thank you, Tiffany. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Breaking Free Podcast, your recovery, your way. We want to hear from you. Email us at hello at breakingfreerecovery.com or join our Facebook group, Breaking Free Community. Tell us what Breaking Free means to you. 